on March 22, 1977, a successful businessman from Tucson, Arizona, drops his $2 off at school. He then vanishes. Three days later, he arrives back home, claiming to be poisoned. Two months later, on June 7th, he disappears again. This time, he's found dead nine days later with a gunshot wound to the back of the head. His death is ruled a suicide. But this is only the start of the mystery. You're listening to the Mysterious Bruce Podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of Chuck Morgan. Pollenfield Basement. I did not realize that I was allergic to elm trees until recently, and I cannot stop sneezing. Like, if I step outside, my eyes magically water. Dude, my my sinuses are uh, just, I don't know what's going on with them, but they're the worst they've ever been in my life. So, we uh, do not have any new patrons, but we had some good conversations about... Amy Fitzpatrick's case from a young lady in Ireland, and her name is Aisling Garland. And you're gonna have to make me an admin of this Patreon. I need to be able to see what's going on. Well, it's not on Patreon. It this is actually on um, what is it? Instagram. Sorry. So she reached out and she said that um, she first said that uh, oh wow, poor Amy. No doubt it was her stepdad and her mom is still with him. I'm Irish. I'm friends with her cousin. And so I replied with, was this case in the Irish news a lot? Also, do you know if anyone, or do you know anyone that may have details on why the mom got custody of Amy and her brother? And so she responded with a couple of uh, replies. One was a video about the aunt talking about her taking up that case the cold case thing that we discussed in the podcast. But she also said that at the time it was all over the news in Ireland 24 seven. And it's still on the news every anniversary of her missing date and her birthday. And she said that in Ireland, the mom always gets custody of the children. Dads are always treated badly. So it's like the sixties. It's like the sixties over here or the seventies, whatever you want. Well, it's still kind of like that over here. Well, yeah. Cause but anyway, so basically that answered that question. She said that Amy had a good relationship with her family in Ireland and came home a lot. Her dad's sister, that's the aunt, Christine, she thinks is her name, really fought to keep Amy's name out there. And that's the in the Ireland Independent or Independent Ireland newspaper. That's where I saw that. She said that she just had finished. She started the podcast and then she finished it. 
She said, I finished the podcast. Well done. And thanks for spreading Amy's name. Amy's aunt, Christine, is a rock. Her family has had so much tragedy. This is Christine now. Christine's son passed away about seven years ago at 30 from a blood clot on his brain. And her other son had cancer, but now he's in remission. As you said in the podcast, most people think Dean found something out and was going to go to the guards, a.k.a. the police, with the info, and honestly, Dave is a scumbag. So she's she's uh she's team mysterious Bruce. She's going she'll meet us at the gate. She may drive us to just pop him. Let's do it. <laughs> oh man! So that's the big thing this week. No five star reviews. No, 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 no. Um, if you are not following us on TikTok, I highly recommend that you do. My little uh. Guilty Pleasure movie has taken off. We've had 26,000 views with 450 comments. Really? And they, Roadhouse? Well, it's the what I stitched was name one movie that's a guilty pleasure. And so I said Roadhouse and a couple of people agreed. And then they just went down a laundry list of, of movies. And yeah. So there's some good ones. And then I got a, um, I think I got an email um, and somebody said that, uh, Roadhouse is good, but it's no point break. <laughs> oh, it is. It so is, though. I know it, man. But anyway. All right, so that's enough of the bills and bills. So we're going to talk about young Charles Chuck Morgan. And Charles was 39 this, years. This case has got more twists and turns and mysteries than... You can shake a dang stick at it. Yeah, this is actually, if we wanted to, we could chase the rabbit for an, at least another episode, possibly two. Are we going, yeah, we're going to have to do, the, we're going to have to do the, the follow-up. Yeah. So, 39-year-old Charles Morgan was the president and owner of Statewide Escrow in Tucson, Arizona. Most people would say that he led a normal, unassuming, sort of boring life. But Charles was married to Ruthie Morgan, and they had four daughters. Charles would leave his home on March 22, 1977, when I was just a, a wee lad of two years old. Mm. Actually, I was a year and a half. And drive to his daughter's school and drop them off. After he drops them off, he simply vanishes without a trace. So when he doesn't return home that evening, Ruthie becomes extremely worried. Because it was not like Charles at all just to go off without saying anything. So she reports him missing. For the next three days, there was no sign of Charles. At 2 a.m. in the morning on March 25th, 1977, after apparently disappearing into thin air, Ruthie is awakened by a banging on the home's back door. When she went to see who it was, she was shocked to see that it was Chucky. And Charles is standing there, apparently in a daze. Ruthie would say that he was in very bad shape with one shoe missing, one plastic handcuff around one ankle, and zip ties around his hands. When she tried to talk to him, he merely gestured towards his throat in a panic, so she sat him down and gave him a pen and a pad. Charles scrawls out, on the paper that he had been kidnapped, tortured, and that his throat had been sprayed with some sort of mysterious hallucinogenic drug that affected the nervous system 
and that if he were to try and talk, he risked swallowing it and going irrevocably insane or even death. Okay, well, my first question is, is what could that have possibly been, and how can you possibly not ingest it if it's in the back of your throat? That's my thing. It it, it would have made more sense. I mean, I, I guess— Ain't it going to drip? That's what I was going to say. If you're not constantly spitting it out, A, you're going to be dehydrated, but rinse your mouth out and just hope for the best, I guess is what. But anyway, and I, somebody theorized, I've looked at so much stuff on this case, man. This case, like you said, this case is crazy. Well, it is featured on Unsolved Mysteries. So if you want to see how it's done right, look it up on YouTube and <laughs> check out their stuff. Somebody like theorized that it was a, $7 word had about 27 consonants stuck to each other. But basically it was a, some sort of, I guess a, like a precursor to laughing gas that you could spray for like dental work, but it was not, they said that it could be life threatening if like high, high doses, but the way it sounded, the and this is all theory because no one knows what he was sprayed with. But it sounds like it just numbs your throat, and it you're basically on a little bit of a trip. Yeah, well, man, he could have been. Well, depending on the, I mean, whatever happened to him was a traumatic experience, I'm sure. So they could have just told him straight up. It could have been just water. Yeah, or uh, what is it? That. Chloroseptic, where it numbs your. Yeah, yeah, it could have been chloroseptic, and they're like, "If you talk, I swear to God, you're right." Like, I mean, seriously, they've they've kidnapped you, they've handcuffed you. They probably beat you in some manner. Now, all of a sudden, they tell you. I mean, why wouldn't you believe them? Oh, yeah. I'm believing everything that comes out of their mouth if they've zip-tied me and handcuffed me and beat the piss out of me. So, yeah. Well, the only way to keep him from swallowing it, according to him, was not to speak. And so when his wife begged him to go to the hospital, he flat-out refused and said, quote, they would kill him and the whole family if he did. He also told Ruthie to move his car to the back of the house so that the assailants wouldn't know he had come home. So Ruthie does as she is instructed, and for the next few days, she nurses Charles back to health. Also, if he did truly escape, where's the first place they're going to look for? Oh, yeah. Hiding your car in the back of the house, probably not going to be enough to trick these guys. No. Now, during this time, the only thing that Charles would say was that he had worked for, quote, them for around three years and that they had taken away his, quote, treasury identification. He also implied that he was working for the federal government as an agent combating organized crime, although details were few and far between, that he would relinquish to Ruthie. Ruthie is startled and has no idea what Charles is even talking about. And when she asked him for more information, he basically told her, the less you know, the better. And he clammed up. So he slowly regains his ability to speak, but he refused to talk to his family about what had happened and offered no further details about the happenings of that night or what happened during the three days that he was missing. Now, at the same time, people around him stated that his personality changed dramatically. 
He became extremely paranoid, constantly checking outside and refusing to let his daughters go out alone without him. No one was allowed to drive his daughters to and from school except for him, and he even spoke to school officials stating that the girls were not allowed to leave with anyone else but their father. Charles also told his father that he had written and hidden a letter which stated who would be responsible if something were to happen to him. On top of that, he grew a thicker beard in order to change his appearance and began wearing a bulletproof vest at all times. Like I went from having stubble to a yeah. beard. Yeah, they'll, no. never, they'll never know never it's me. Well, that one, I think that famous picture of him, like his, uh, I guess company photo he's got a close yeah. trim beard but i mean even if you grow that out a little bit you're not going i mean it's not going to grow out that much so you're right you know he's not doing a whole lot except for the bulletproof vest that kind of says hey i'm taking this a little serious <laughs> yeah so after some time had passed he confided in his wife that he was working as an agent for the u.s treasury treasury department and that it involved real estate fraud and money laundering being, being carried out by the mafia, something that he had deep knowledge of working in the escrow business. Yeah, I know we'll get into it later, but this whole thing with the Arizona, their practices just was begging for organized crime to move in. Oh, yeah, it was crazy. The way I read the, I mean, it was basically a huge loophole where they could just launder millions of dollars. Yeah, essentially... You could buy land anonymously in a numbered account, and that just was begging people to launder money through, because this is basically meaning it's untraceable to anyone. You could do anything with that money, and and if people got suspicious, who cares? They couldn't find you anyway. Yeah, there's no ties to you. Yeah. So Charles goes on to tell Ruthie that he was to testify against two major mafia families, these being the Ned Warren family and the Joe Bonanno family. He also told her that if anything were to happen to him, he would leave a letter behind explaining everything. So two months after his first disappearance, old Charles would disappear again without a trace after dropping his daughters off at school. I just, I don't know. I don't know how he carried on with life. I don't know how Ruthie carried on. I mean, it doesn't, we don't have any details of how suspicious she was and how she dealt with this. I mean, come on, your husband disappeared, comes back, don't talk for five days, claims to be a secret agent, has a hallucinogen on his throat. Like, how do you carry on life after that? That's a good question. Like, and then you're just like, okay, Chuck, you take them girls to the to the to their school. Well, I like the fact that he told the school officials that no one could check them out except him. And I guess he was thinking that maybe they could threaten Ruthie with killing him, and she could check them out. I don't know. Well, if I was with Chuck, I'd have I would have had Ruthie with me at all times. Right, and the other thing is, I don't know if she was. I would figure she was a stay-at-home mom with four daughters. Yeah, I mean, same, but I'm saying, like, you just got, you escaped mob hitmen, and you're getting protective over your daughters, but, ah, Ruthie can stay at home. She ain't she fan for, yeah, she, she's scrappy. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's scrappy. <laughs> <laughs> they ain't taking her. <laughs> she's a hellcat. It, it don't make any sense to me. No, it doesn't. 
So after nine days had passed and no signs of Charles, Ruthie and the police start looking for the letter that he had promised that he would leave, but it never did turn up. And as the investigation seemed to be going cold, Ruthie receives an odd phone call from a woman who identifies herself as, quote, green eyes. Yep. The mysterious woman simply said, Ruthie, Chuck is all right. Ecclesiastics 12, 1 through 8. Well, first of all, it's not Ecclesiastics, it's Ecclesiastes. But anyway, that Bible chapter and verses go like this. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come, and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, when people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint, when people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the street. Remember him before the silver cord is severed and the golden bowl is broken, before the pitcher is shattered at the spring and the wheel broken at the well, and the dust returns to the ground and came from and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. So See, very, she, very cryptic. In plain English, she gave Ruthie everything she needed to know to solve the case. Right there. And Ruthie just couldn't do it. Chapter I mean, and verse. Yeah, like that make that angers me so that people could just be shown exactly what's going on like that. <laughs> and yeah. just can't catch on. You know? I guarantee you, Ruthie like hung up the phone or that lady hang hung up on her. And she runs, finds her Bible, reads those, and like closes her Bible and looks up like, I got it. I was thinking, I was thinking more of the Tim Allen sound from Home Improvement. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a little bit confusing. Um, they do go on to say that the um, the verse is kind of, I guess say that everything was coming to an end and even though she says he's okay, it kind of leads you to the conclusion that everything's not okay and everything that he, do he had done was meaningless to the point. Well, everything turns out okay, right? Oh, yeah, man. Everything's fine. We we're about to get to the birthday cake. Oh, cool. <laughs> so, along those lines, two, li two days later on June 18th, 1977, Charles would be found near his Mercury Cougar shot dead on a remote dirt road in the wastelands of Arizona, approximately 40 miles from his home. When police arrive at the scene, they found that he had died from a single gunshot wound to the back of his head from his own gun. To the back of his head. Yes. Mm -hmm. With the bullet going through the skull and lodging in his teeth. He was dressed in his usual attire that included his bulletproof vest, and he was also armed with his revolver, which was a three fifty seven Magnum, a hunting knife, a belt buckle that concealed the knife, and a holster. They well, also it is interesting to point out that the gun itself had no fingerprints on it, but Chuck had gun gunshot residue on his hands. 
Right. How do you get gunshot residue on your hands? But don't leave a fingerprint. But don't leave fingerprints on the gun. That's one of them our mysteries. Now, a pair of sunglasses were found at the scene, but they were not Charles's. Now, Pima County Sheriff investigators... Now, hold on. Now, don't leave out the another interesting thing that was found in the car. That's what I'm getting to, bro. Oh. God, you trying to jump the... Dissipate today. Good Lord. So, they search his car. They find a CB radio, several weapons, a cache of ammunition for said weapons, and the car had reportedly been altered so that it could be unlocked from the fender, but on the rear seat of the car... Charles's tooth was discovered wrapped in a white handkerchief, and yet this isn't the strangest thing they find at the scene. They also find pinned to young Charles's underwear a $2 bill with seven Spanish surnames beginning with Acevedo, Bejarano, Cairo, Duarte, Encinas, Fuenta, and Gradillas, and rather spookily, the words Ecclesiastes 12 with the verses 1 through 8 marked by arrows drawn on the bill's serial number. Now remember, this is the same Bible verse that old green eyes told Ruthie. Then on the That's back the of the bill, right yeah, on the back of the bill, the signers of the Declaration of Independence were numbered 1 through 7 and there was a roughly drawn map. The map had two towns on it, Robles Junction and Salas City. Now, Robles Junction is roughly between, depending on which way you travel, between 82 and 171 miles from Nogales, Mexico. So that's right across the border. And we all know that Nogales is a, you know, proper uh, vacation resort. No doubt. There's no, nothing nefarious is piped through those locations. Not at all. Now, as for Salas City, there is no such town, community, or any other destination with that name. It was theorized that Salas City could be either Saharita or Sonorita, but that's about as far as it went. Robles Junction had a reputation for the first stop in the U.S. for the smuggling line at the time coming out of Nogales. Now, Charles also had a piece of paper with directions to where he was found shot, and the directions were in his own handwriting. So there's a lot to unpack there. He had he was loaded for bear. I mean, the way yeah. it sounded, he had his pistol, he had plenty of ammunition for it, but they also said there was other weapons and ammunition for it, and then he had the old mail order belt buckle with a knife in it, a hunting knife, a CB radio, but why was his tooth in the back? What is that? I have no idea, man. That's it. Also, seems odd to me that it was in the back seat. That like literally, like who loses part of a tooth and sticks it in the back seat? Well, see, and I guess that's my thing. You know, there's two possible scenarios here. You've got they tortured him and yanked that sucker out, and then he tries to get away and they shoot him, or. They knock the crap out of him. He spits the tooth in his uh, handkerchief. But how does it get, why does it get in the back of the? Yeah. If you're going to torture someone, you're just not going to take out one tooth. I mean, it would be enough for me. Don't get me wrong. You take one of my teeth out with no anesthesia, I'll tell you everything. I'll, I'll <laughs> well, give you the codes. It was a part of a tooth. It wasn't a whole tooth. So that leads to believe, or leads you to believe that he got the piss knocked out of him. Yeah. 
Crazy man. Crazy. All right, so two days after Charles's body is found, old Green Eyes, she makes another call. This time, she calls the Pima County Sheriff's Department. And she claimed that shortly before Charles's death, that she had met with him at a local motel. There, she said he had shown her a briefcase stuffed with money and claimed that it was to buy out a hit that had been put on him by the mob. Now, according to Old Green Eyes, Charles had driven out into the desert with the money to meet the hitman and buy him off. Because, you know, that's always going to end well. If you just take a boatload of money out there to a known killer. Yeah. To the middle of nowhere desert. Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't trust that. No. I'm not saying hitmen aren't trustworthy, but... He probably would have been better off taking that money to like Belize or Switzerland or something and trying or, to live his life. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And then send for his wife. Yeah. And just like we are surmising, old Green Eye says that instead of taking the payout, the hitman took Charles's money, then killed him and got the money from the mob. So he got two paydays. Well, either the, it's a, yeah, either that he double dipped or he got Charles to pay for his own hit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so Ruthie would also have her own odd experience, and that is when two men show up to her house claiming to be FBI agents and tear apart her house looking for something. Well, also, um, Chuck's before that happens, Chuck's car is going to be broken into while in the police impound. Again. And... His office is going to be ransacked. And then about two weeks later is when the quote-unquote FBI agents show up at the house. So and they, tear apart, they tear that house apart. Yes. So obviously it would lead you to believe that the hitman was supposed to take something from Charles that would lead back to the mob or whoever had paid him. But they, he didn't have it on him. He didn't have it in the car. So then they break into the impound lot again to search the car. Then they break into his office and can't find it. Then they go to his house and can't find it. Yeah, it makes sense to search the car again because who's going to thoroughly search a car at the site of a murder, you know? True. I'm sorry, not murder. We forgot to mention that the police are going to rule this a suicide. Right, man. Due to financial problems. Yeah. Even with a gunshot to the back of the head. All these strange clues, bulletproof vests, abductions, strange phone calls, all these weird things going on. And they're like, nah, he put the gun to the back of his head. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Show me gunshot suicide statistics, and I promise you, back of the head is going to be the lowest one. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, medical investigators stated that his body or I'm sorry, that he had actually been dead for only about 12 hours when they found him. So on Charles's hand, they found, like you had stated previously, the gunpowder residue, and considering the handgun he had been carrying had been fired, it seemed as if he must have committed suicide. But there's some more to that. Yeah, there's no fingerprints on the gun. Now, one was the gunpowder... <laughs> I don't know. How can you shoot yourself... And then wipe the gun clean. Yeah. There's going to be at least the print of your index finger. Yeah. At least. On the trigger. At the very least. 
Now, one of the odd things that they found was the gunpowder marks from the shot, which were found on his left hand. And guess what? Charles ain't left-handed. Charles is right-handed. The other oddity is, like Coach said, there's no fingerprints. And then to even double down on that, the entire car had no fingerprints. And Charles was not wearing gloves when they found him. So according to authorities, he was able to shoot himself, wipe the gun clean, and before he did all of that, he wiped his, the car down. I mean, that makes total sense to me. That checks out. I don't even know why we're investigating this. <laughs> now, police would go on record stating that there was no hard evidence that old Green Eye's story was true, and there was no evidence of foul play. None. No evidence. That's terrible. <laughs> the the $2 bill. The code. The call. Yeah. Yeah, that's not... Now, the case... Not suspicious at all. Again, I can't believe we even chose this case because of... How blatantly obvious it is. It's a lockdown, knockout, case closed. Yeah. They get it wrapped up tight. Well, for those of you wondering, he chose it, so I'm just saying. (laughs) (laughs) So, the case was picked up by investigative journalist Don Devereaux, who worked for a newspaper in Cochise, Arizona. He would uncover even more oddities around young Charles's death. And he says that he discovers evidence that Charles had indeed testified in a secret state investigation against the mafia. But when he contacted the FBI for more information, they claim they did not even know who Charles Morgan was. Devereaux would say to this, quote, when I made a Freedom of Information Act request to the FBI, they had never heard of Mr. Morgan, despite the fact that they obviously opened an investigation. Despite the fact the FBI interviewed Mr. Morgan's attorney, they were all over this thing like a blanket for a while, but now they've never heard of the guy. He never existed. No card, well, no me, file, no nothing. Gotta, that's got to be a hard-line answer for the FBI. They're not going to admit to anything about anyone. Well, and if it's... They probably wouldn't even... Oh, we don't know. We don't even know who uh, Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover is. Who's that? We've never heard that name. Well, I was going to say, I don't know when he picked up this case, but I mean, if he picked it up, say, three years later, you're looking late 70s, early 80s. They're not real keen on making Freedom of Information Act request to the general public at that time for the old FBI. But Devereaux is going to be the first one to... to, uh... I think it was, let me quote him, quote, this is fucking bullshit, (laughs) end quote, end quote, print it, yeah, run that in the paper, please, (laughs) now he, now Devereaux would also state that when he looked at the names on the back of the $2 bill, two of the names allegedly referred to two law enforcement officers that worked around the Tucson area at the time of Charles's death. Now, Devereaux also ended up finding out that Charles had been heavily involved in money laundering in the early 70s, and by 1973, Charles was using his escrow business to launder large sales of gold and platinum over a billion dollars, mostly from Southeast Asia. Here's the, here's the uh, spoiler alert. There never was any gold or platinum. He's just moving money. Right. It's the shell game. moving money and making it legit. Yeah, it's shell game. There is no gold. 
So Charles kept duplicate records of these illegal transactions, hoping they would help him if he ever got in a pinch. Yeah, if you want to not get unalived by the mob, it'd be a good idea not to keep duplicate records. Yeah. So it was rumored undercover CIA agents. 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 People from the Department of Defense. Secret agent, man. People from the Department of Defense and exiled Vietnamese government officials were also involved in all this money laundering. It is speculated that Charles was ultimately killed for these records, and I guarantee you that's what them folks was looking for. That would make sense. Now, Devereaux stated that he did, in fact, discover that Charles worked with at least one organized crime family who may have killed him if he found out too much. At the time of his death, Charles was involuntary witness for the Arizona General Attorney's Office inquest involving a bank. He was also a key witness in a secret state investigation on illegal activity on the Arizona and Mexico border, and prosecutors were building a case against a known organized crime family. Now, going circling back to the names that Devereaux looked at on the back of that, he said that he knew that they referred to two law enforcement officers. Online, there is a thread, I can't remember if it was on... Reddit, or if it was on uh, the other, what's the other website that? Yeah, that's it. Well, no, 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 not sitcoms, not sitcoms. The um, the other big one for true crime, where they crowdsource stuff. I cannot think of that for save my life. But anyway, y'all know what you're probably screaming into your web sleuths. Yeah, there we go, web sleuths. So. They say that not just two of them, but all of them referred to cops that worked between Tucson and Nogales. And so it was like they that was their pipeline and they knew when stuff was coming through. So those cops would let it pass through if they ever got stopped. Hmm. Now that is interesting. But I couldn't find anything else. It's just that that's what he dug up. And then, I mean, it's kind of cut and dry and that's all it says. Nobody ever gives you any other information on how he came to that or if they were ever prosecuted or if they were charged with anything, but that's what a couple of the threads had stated. So when you think this case cannot possibly get any weirder, you're going to need to tighten that old buckle up because buttercup we're heading down the rabbit hole. So the oddities start going ballistic. The first oddity is Someone did not like that Devereaux was snooping around. And on May 14th, 1990, at 11 p.m. in Phoenix, Arizona, Doug Johnston left for his night shift at a computer graphics company. He was found dead an hour later in his company's parking lot, slumped in the front seat of the car, having been shot once behind the left ear. It was determined that the gun had been at least 12 inches away from Doug when it went off. Just like Charles's case, authorities believe that Doug commits suicide. However, just like in Charles's case, Doug's right-handed. And it's going to be awful hard to shoot yourself behind the left ear with your right hand. Uh, not impossible. But it's not impossible. <laughs> and the bullet was still behind his left ear. No gun, no gun residue was found on Doug or at the crime scene, but a twenty-five caliber bullet casing was found outside the vehicle. 
Now, the medical examiner said that the shot could have been self-inflicted or the work of someone else. Doug's widow said he would have never committed suicide. Now, Devereaux worked directly across the street from where Doug was murdered, and another interesting aspect that Devereaux shared with Doug was the car they both drove. They both drove a Toyota station wagon. And just after the murder of Doug Johnson, Devereaux had a conversation with another journalist who had received a warning from the CIA. This journalist allegedly stated that he had a trusted CIA source that the killing of Doug Johnson was a botched hit and that the bullet was meant for Devereaux. The source goes on to claim that there were still contracts out for Devereaux's death. And these threats may have occurred because of Devereaux looking into Charles Morgan's case. And that's not even the tip of the iceberg. After all of this goes down, a man by the name of Danny Casalero, who was a writer in Washington, D.C., reaches out to Devereaux and they want, or Danny is wanting to discuss the gold transactions. But before Devereaux could send the information, Danny is found dead in a hotel room in the bathtub with 12 deep lacerations to his wrist. Police rule it a suicide, and Danny's brother, who was a medical doctor, said that Danny was so squeamish he would barely let his brother prick his finger for any blood work which does not add up with Danny's method of suicide. The other oddity in that one, and this will probably have its own case because we can chase this forever. Oh, yeah. That that goes deep, deep as well. Yeah. They wiped the, well, not they, the entire hotel room was wiped clean, and they embalmed Danny before they even let Danny's family know that he's dead. And you thought we were just going to talk about some poor sap that embezzled some money. now Devereaux did not let it deter him from pursuing what really happened to Charles and has given his thoughts on the case quote I've never seen in all my years as a journalist a fellow take himself out in the desert wearing a bulletproof vest and shoot himself in the back of the head there is a great likelihood that Mr. Morgan was in fact doing something with the government I think this was a guy who was extremely naive about a lot of things. I think somebody blew his cover and he got killed. He was around the edges of a couple of very large organized crime groups in Arizona at that time. It was very easy to get in over your head, and I suspect that over the years, Mr. Morgan was in that kind of situation. He was doing perhaps upwards of a billion dollars of escrow work in bullion and platinum. These were transactions that only existed on paper. He was a straight businessman that probably got a little too close to the flame. I think the $2 bill provided the basis for some kind of code. What seemed to be missing, however, was the document that the $2 bill would unlock. If he was quietly aiding the U.S. government and monitoring the activities of one or more major organized crime families, then he wasn't a villain. He was a good guy, and they need to know that, end quote. Yeah. That's definitely true. If uh, if somehow had the key to the code, you would know. Villain or hero, it's up in the air. Yeah, it is. So the theories out there, we can go ahead and shoot down the first one. The theories was that, in fact, Charles committed suicide. No. No, we're not buying Incorrect. that. Just based on the fact that 
there's no fingerprints on it. And I guess my thing is to properly, I would think, and this is just me, I would think you would tilt the gun upside down and use your thumb to pull the trigger if you're going to shoot yourself in the back of the head. And you'd probably hold it with both hands, like use both thumbs. Because if you turn it sideways, you could blow your eyeball out and still live. I just don't believe that. I mean, you know, just alone on the fingerprint evidence, I think you throw that one out. And that's not even dealing with the fact that his tooth's in the back seat. There's sunglasses near the car that don't belong to him, and that $2 bill is pinned to his underwear. Well, there are going to be some reports that people did see him in restaurants and bars and things of that nature during the time, the nine days he was missing before he was found dead. Whether those are accurate or not, who knows, but they are going to be reported. So that's the interesting thing to consider as well. And could it be one of those things where he disappears, he's got to go, like he leaves his family. He's got to go get all the stuff together. He's got to get the money somehow. And then he's trying to get some liquid encouragement at these bars to actually go through with it. I'm wondering if that, I mean, there could be validity to it and that be the reasoning behind it. That's possible. Now, the other theory was Charles was killed due to being in the secret service. And it should be noted that Morgan definitely was not in the secret service. But if he was, as he said to his wife, it's possible that this led to his murder. Yeah. I mean, the secret service deals with, counterfeiting and protecting the president. I mean, that's pretty much their two main duties. They don't really deal with the mob. They don't really deal with money laundering. Right. And that's what I didn't understand because this theory, they stated Charles had allegedly done escrow work for organized crime families before his death. He had also testified in a secret state investigation on the illegal activity on both sides of the Arizona, Mexico border. He was a reluctant witness for the Arizona attorney general's office in the questioning of a now closed Tucson bank, was Charles alluding to this case when he told his wife that he had been undercover with the treasury department? So I, I mean, I kind of see the circuit or secret service angle, but there's a, there's a big difference between secret service and working for the treasury department. Now, one of Charles's daughters, Megan Heidi, had stated, quote, my father had a lot of information about people here in Tucson that could have been very detrimental. There was a lot of information about politicians, people who are still alive that work in our government. He had that information and they wanted to silence him, end quote. Now, the last theory and probably the most reasonable one is that the hitman double dipped. I think that's the most likely thing is either he double dipped or he or the mob just told the hitman, you know, have him pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Now, but if somebody says, somebody makes contact with you and says, look, I'm going to kill you unless you give me 60,000 to buy your way out of this hit, but meet me in the middle of the desert. I'd be like, I'll meet you pay. at the busiest place I can think of. Yeah. We're going to meet at Brave Stadium on opening day. Right near third base. <laughs> yeah. Like, at, yeah. Between th- set, we're going to meet it right at the shortstop position during third inning. <laughs> the Pima County Sheriff's Department claimed 
that the woman, Green Eyes, who had contacted Ruthie and them, had also told them that she had been in a motel with Charles before he died. Now, they would go on to confirm that he did, in fact, stay in a West Side motel for over a week before he was shot. And that's where Green Eyes stated that she, uh, Charles had showed her that briefcase full of cash. Now, he's dealing in upwards of a billion dollars in money laundering. And there were also perhaps, this person stated, undercover CIA agents involved, most likely to protect money for themselves. Allegedly exiled Vietnamese government officials were involved, as well as people from the Department of Defense. So keep in mind when they, you know, a lot of people may be thinking, what does the Vietnamese government officials have to do with this? Well, just, I mean, when he's killed in 77, the Vietnam War had just ended in 75. So that's where the Vietnamese government officials come in. As for the Department of Defense and the CIA agents, you could have an undercover agent that is expendable that's kind of double dipping as well. They're getting their cut of the money laundering pie as well as being paid by the CIA. But this person said that basically they would, uh, they assumed and would put their money on the Bonanno crime family and not the other one. But Devereaux kind of sums it up and says that he believes that some of the same people involved in this money laundering scheme and the death of Charles are still out there and perhaps silencing Charles and Danny was a way to killed the whole story well the danny story is a little different There's just a, a tad just a tad a little more meat on that bone it's we like might, a turkey leg we might have to talk about next week yes sir we will <laughs> so i think he was killed by the hitman and i think here's the way i think it happened i think the hitman whoever it is they pay either one of their own Mafia hitman to go get him. And then he contacts, somehow he gets word of who it is. He contacts them, meet me here. I'm going to buy you out. You can take the money back. I'm going to disappear. The guy's like, yeah, man, sure. And so he gets double the money and never tells the mob. He's just like, yep, job done. I don't think the mob would care either. Nope. You know, he got the job done and then he got a little tip for it. Now, I think when you go into, when you get into bed with the mafia and you're money laundering and then they think you're expendable, that's the thing though. You got to make it to where, almost like Al Capone's accountant, you got to make it to where you're the only one that can make this stuff happen. Because if you you don't, you are expendable. And I'm wondering if that's what they did. I'm wondering if they found someone to fill his shoes or if they were going to use another company. And then it comes out that he's kept all these records and now they've really got to, to silence him. But where did the records go? You know, cause as far as I know, that's never been found. I'm thinking the FBI quote unquote FBI agents found what they were looking for. Makes sense. We well, also, uh, told his father before he disappeared, of course, for the second time in between the, the disappearances, he told his father that if anything bad were to happen to him, there's a handwritten letter that's going to explain everything. That letter's never been found. No, and, and the letter that he promised Ruthie's never been found. Correct. I don't know, man. That's a, it's a, this is a doozy because 
it kind of opens up a can of worms worms on the Casalero case and mm-hmm. there's another individual tied to that case that we could probably do and he had tie and he's got ties back to Arkansas and you know people love our Arkansas episode. So I finally, you know, sidebar, I finally read the uh book on Sheriff Ralph Baker and I yeah. highly recommend it. It's not a long read, it's about four hundred and fifty pages. It's it's good, man. It's good. <laughs> you and I have two different definitions of long read. <laughs> Took me two I days to read. Long read. I was like, Oh, so like green eggs and ham. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, you mean a Reader's Digest short story? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it it but is a good the the dollar bill and the Ecclesiastes. What was the point? That's got to be a code, like you said, man. It's got to lead to something. It's got to, you know. There's is it a cipher? Do you take those and you use the one through eight thing? You know, I'm not I'm not saying he was or he was not smart enough to come up with a cipher like that. But there's got to be something in that. And it would, what's the point of phone calls? I mean, why even bother telling the police that I oh I called his wife and we stayed in the hotel and he showed me a bunch of money? I mean, wh- why? I mean, yeah. What was her end game? What is is she is she just a red herring? Is she there to throw him off? But they confirmed that he actually was at a hotel. So I don't know. I mean, that angle, you know puzzles me as much as the whole why did you I mean I guess I know why it's, it's easy money and he could have been skimming that's another thing that I didn't think of till just now he could have been skimming off a billion dollars if he's doing a billion dollars in transactions they're not going to miss a couple of million mm, clearly they would <laughs> clearly they did <laughs> but it's like everybody else they get greedy you take a couple and you're done. You don't take a couple every time and then amass something like $40 million. You know, it's like these white collar criminals. If he had done that, we wouldn't no be talking about that. it. No, it's like these white collar criminals. They embezzle like $45 million. At what point when you got to 20, did you think, hey, man, I pushed my luck enough. I don't need to go any further. Yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not testing the mob. I'm no. not. My experience is, with the mob is strictly movies, but in the movies, they don't fuck around. <laughs> Especially if you're cutting into their racket. Yeah. I don't know, man. I just, I don't have any answers for it. It's just, I'm, I agree. He got, it was a hit. I'm sure he was embezzling money. I'm sure he got to know too much or whatever, but the rest of the stuff is just confounding. Dollar bill, the, the calls, the, the, hallucinogen all that stuff just it's so strange like what yeah i mean if, if if it was a cut and dry case of they find him shot it's kind of a police cover-up in the late 70s they they deem it a suicide we all know better than that because he was laundering money if that was if it was just those aspects it would be a pretty boring case but you throw it like you said you throw in the dollar bill the tooth he was kidnapped missed for three days, some people say he faked that, which I don't see why you would fake that. But anyway, well, and then yeah, but I mean, also, if the first kidnapping was legit and what he said happened happened, he's still taking his daughters to the same high school, the same house, the same car. He didn't change anything. All he did was grow his beard out a little bit and 
Wear a bullet, yeah. bulletproof vest. I'm on the first plane to somewhere in Southeast Asia and get lost in Nepal or something. Like, I'm not coming home ever again. No. And it, obviously he amassed, I would say, tens of thousands of dollars to try to buy off the hitman. Take that yeah. money and liquidate what you can. Find a buddy to sell your house. And I you and the kids. Saskatchewan. Exactly. I'm chasing Bigfoot full time in the Sierra Nevadas. Yeah, no, I'm drinking not Sierra Nevadas. I'm gone. Like a fart in a dust storm. I'll be in Switzerland making pocket knife. I would be in the ganja fields of India. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> so. Take my chances in Afghanistan. I'm, I'm getting the hell out of town. And he didn't. And that's just. That yeah, ultimately, big... he didn't change anything in his daily activities. He still went to work. Like you said, he didn't, you know, the kids still go to school. So I don't know, man. I, it's it's odd, but we can sit here and beat all these to death. But, ladies and gentlemen, we will have a follow-up on the old Danny Casalero. Yes, sir. And the octopus. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so recommendation times. What you got, bro? Well... I recommend if you I don't I can't remember if I recommended it on the last episode or not because I haven't listened to it yet. But if I did, so what? It's good. Winning time. You didn't. I was about the to rise say. of the Lakers on HBO Max is freaking good. It's good. It's good. If you like if the like one about the Bulls, if you like basketball, it's okay. But if you like nudity and drugs. It's really good. <laughs> <laughs> Feel like a couple of boobies poking out. Yeah. If you're a big basketball fan, you might like it. But if you're a booby fan, <laughs> you're going to love it. <laughs> uh, do, they, uh, do they go over how Magic's still alive? Well, they ain't got to that part yet. They're okay. in 1980. Oh, we're just in 1980. Okay. It's his uh, rookie year. Oh, uh, okay. Okay. Well, I <laughs> alluded to it in the opening my recommendation is you follow Mysterious Brews on TikTok because uh, not that I post a whole lot of stuff, but uh, I do share a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah. And that's what's important. That's what, how TikTok works. You steal other people's content. That's right. <laughs> like you think I'm making them memes on the Facebook page? Hell no, I'm stealing them from people. <laughs> that's right. That's right, brother. Hey, uh, we want to take this time to thank all of our patrons for sticking with us. We really appreciate it. We know times are tough, and I've seen some of you dropping down a tear, and that's, that's fine as well. Just keep supporting us. Every little thing helps us keep up with the five-star reviews. Take everyone in your place of business hostage, and they cannot leave your site until they they write us a five-star review. That would help us tremendously. No doubt. But, yeah, just so everybody knows, every cent of that Patreon money is getting pulled together specifically to get new equipment. That's right. Either one of us see a dime of it. It's sitting and waiting to cure enough money to improve the quality of this show. Yeah, we are stepping our games up. We are slowly but surely notching it, our little wish list off. So, yeah, Lord knows we need it. <laughs> We may need to take a continuing ed course. We're not sure. <laughs> well, Coach, you got anything else? Oh, you know I don't. Well, deuces. <laughs>